Welcome to The Brain Trust, a physician's guide to diagnosing Alzheimer's disease and related dementias, brought to you from the Illinois Academy of Family Physicians. I'm Dr. Kate Rowland, family physician, member of the IAFP, and faculty at Rush University. Funding for this podcast series was provided by a grant from the Illinois Department of Public Health. The goal of The Brain Trust in this podcast series is to educate and empower the primary care clinician in the early detection, diagnosis, and management of Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. Clinical resources, free CME, and other educational materials are available online at thebraintrustproject.com. CME credit is available for each podcast. The Illinois Academy of Family Physicians is accredited by the Accreditation Council of Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. Information on how to receive credit can be found on the Brain Trust Project website. Thank you for joining us as we empower each other and provide training on the early detection of Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. And now, today's episode. Welcome again to our podcast for the Brain Trust. Today, we're going to spend a little bit more time on the area of diagnosis. This is, again, uh, Raj Shah, a geriatrician and professor at Rush University Medical Center. And I'm back on the road to make another trip to SIU in Springfield, Illinois, to visit my friend, uh, Dr. Yukesh Ranjit, where we'll discuss some of the issues that go on around how do we objectively document that somebody is having a cognitive issue and why that is important. So, Yukesh, really great to see you again today. How are you? Hey, Roz, I'm doing good. How about you? I'm doing okay. Thank you. By the way, great um, uh, suggestion last time on the coffee place to stop at. And, I'm happy you loved it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Good. Um, so, uh, today, Yukesh, we're talking about a really important issue in sort of the diagnostic aspect that I know a lot of family physicians have a little bit of anxiety about and questions about. And one of the things that's important, as we talked about, about what a dementia is, is dementia is a chronic thinking problem that affects people's day-to-day activities. And it's how do we document the thinking? And sometimes, is it really important that I have to document objectively how somebody is having thinking problems in my notes? So what are your thoughts about why is it important in your practice that we document objectively that somebody's having troubles with their cognition? And what does objective mean in that sense? Uh-huh. Uh, so th- that's a really good question. Um, it is very important to basically have an object documentation of what is happening with the patient with dementia. I know as uh, we recall, dementia is, is, is a very big umbrella topic, basically. There are patients with dementia who still have some degree of uh, functionality, and there are people in this dementia spectrum who have a lot of loss of their functionality. So just having the term dementia in the chart does not give a provider a good idea of what is going on with the patient. Also, there are some faculties which might be intact and, you know, there are some other faculties or domains of cognition which might be affected more. So uh, for these reasons, to help the patients basically with their daily functioning, it is very important to document as objectively as possible about uh, the domains that are involved, about uh, the facets of their life rather that is involved and affected by dementia. Yeah. And I guess, you know, Yukesh, what I've heard sometimes or sometimes family physicians will tell me is, well, isn't it enough just if I document that the person is expressing they're having thinking problems and I just write that 
or I write their caregiver is, ha- you know, noticing that they're having difficulties. So the symptoms, right? And, and they're noticing they're having troubles organizing their day-to-day activities or they're having troubles with remembering what they did yesterday. And that's becoming more frustrating to them. So things that we commonly put in the note around sort of the subjective of what people mm-hmm. are telling us and what are the signs. Why isn't that just enough? Why do we have to then move on into sort of like something with our physical exam to objectively state what is happening with their cognition? Basically, uh, objective assessment provides us uh, with a way to see, you know, where the patient is at at the moment and see if there is any further decline, you know, as the time progresses by. That is something that we could do with patients with dementia. For example, the patient or the family member is just saying, I have a thinking problem. It does not give us enough information about how it is affecting their life, basically. So there are various parameters that are taken into consideration, which gives us, in uh, many cases, uh, number which we could use as a yardstick to see where the patient is at at the moment and where the patient would be in future, you know. And the change in those objective values gives us much more greater information to us about how dementia is progressing and what we can do to help them uh, as as the disease progresses. Also, a number of times, uh, subjective documentation, you know, it does not provide a very profound like information about patient oftentimes, you know, uh, and uh, an objective assessment helps us with that as well. Yeah, that's definitely one thing I've noticed. I think, as I've mentioned to you, I've been involved for the last 10 years in this uh, large clinical trial by the NIA or the National Institute on Aging that followed older people, about 20,000 of them in the United States and Australia, to look whether aspirin low-dose exposure could help in preventing dementia from developing. And one of the important things in the study is that we had to, I, I chair a committee called an adjudication committee, where we had to review the charts of everybody that seemed to be having difficulty with their cognition to see if they met the criteria for dementia. And I would say one of the hardest things we had is we would find in the notes somebody writing as a, in a primary care note that they would say, oh, the family is saying this person's having troubles with their thinking. But we would have no objective test that said, ah, I gave them three words to remember and mm-hmm. they were unable after five minutes to recall any of those three words. Uh, which would tell me, as somebody who's reviewing it, that the person is having troubles with what we call episodic memory, right? Short-term memory, that they can't store that memory and remember it five minutes later. And so I think it's really important because it's not just a note for you, right? It's a note for the families and the patient so they can follow and track what's going on now that we have open notes policies. Yes. And it's, a, it's a note for your other providers. Like if you are out, Yukesh, right? And you didn't have that information and that person is now seeing another clinician in your office, they wouldn't know where to start, right? If no. a person moved from a three out of three recall to zero out of three recall in six months, that means a lot more than saying they moved from one out of three on recall in Absolutely. five minutes to zero out of three. And Uh and not just them by itself, it's a a note for you yourself as well. You know, you might see a patient after six months or a year and, you know, if we do not have anything objective documented, sometimes it's hard to figure out where the patient had been previously and where the patient is now. And the other way it helps is like with insurances, a number of times, you know, if you are ordering 
an imaging or if you're ordering a test of some kind and if you do not have a proper documentation, it may not be done or it may not be done in time. So uh, it is immensely important to have this uh, objective documentation as a clinician. And it's not that hard to do. Like uh, you said, Raj, you know, uh, some of these tests are, tests are very simple and, you know, we can just get it done in our brief visit uh, with the patient. And I think that is one of the concerns I hear a lot, right? Like there's a lot of anxiety in a family physician uh, and, and in their office to say, well, you know, in my training, I didn't learn all those neuropsychologic testing and, you know, what it ends up showing that, you know, what is episodic memory? What is semantic memory? What is uh, working memory? <laughs> yes. uh, those terms are not things I spend a lot of time in my education because unfortunately in most of our medical schools, we maybe only spend an hour giving a lecture around dementia, even though it's, you know, the, the fifth leading cause of death in most Absolutely. places, right? <laughs> yes. um, so people are, are usually like, well, if I don't know how to do this and it takes a long time, you know, I don't have time to do this in my office. So shouldn't I just send everybody that I, I get with subjective memory problems to see a neuropsychologist who can spend the three hours or eight hours doing all this test and then get this report? Should we do that for the million people, you know, that are over age 65 in Illinois so that every one of them is required to get a, a neuropsychological examination to document objectively how they're doing with their cognition? What do you think? I think it would be an overkill. Uh, first of all, not everyone needs, you know, uh, cognitive, uh, detailed neurocognitive evaluation. You know, not everyone needs to go through the three-hour test with a, a neurocognitive specialist. Uh, there are things that we could do in our clinic by itself, which would help us assess uh, a patient's cognition. And these tests are very short tests. Uh, the other thing is uh, we do not have that many, you know, uh, people specializing in neurocognitive tests in, in, in our state, basically. Here in central Illinois and in southern Illinois, we can literally count enhanced number of people who are specialized in those tests. If we send each and every one of our patients for those tests, it would take them up to months and years for them to even get evaluated. And the patient might have a significant decline in the meantime. And there are other things that we could have provided those patients and in the meantime that the patient would miss out on. So uh, I think it would be a better idea if we as primary care providers did some of the preliminary testing and then send the patient down. And I, I do agree. I mean, like the words, uh, the terminology you know, uh, that are used in some of these neurocognitive evaluations, they sound like Greek and Latin, you know, they sound very foreign to us. And I do remember just having one, you know, lecture in med school and just a, a few assessment, you know, in, in my residency. But we don't have to master all of these tests. If we just know a few tests, you know, that, that could help us a lot in our clinical practice by itself. Yeah, and def definitely, I think some of it is we're using it in a different way, right? Like we're not necessarily how we're trying to use it is in our diagnostic capabilities to say that this person has a thinking problem. Um, yeah. So we just have to be able to at least document that they're having a problem in a particular area. So are they having problems with remembering three words back, right? Um, Absolutely. After delay. Are they having troubles with repeating phrases, which is a language function, right? Are yes. they having difficulties with drawing a figure or a clock, which can tell me a lot about their visual spatial abilities, 
Um, are they having and, yeah. problems organizing a three-step command, which tells me about their executive function? And we just have to at least document one or two of those, right? To Ab- be able absolutely. to say that this yeah. person's going to meet criteria for a thinking problem. Yes. And uh, there are a few tests that, that are fairly simple ones, like Minicog, you know, it's a, it's a simple test in which uh, we ask the patient to, to remember three words. Then we ask them to draw a clock and set time on the clock. And uh, after five minutes, we ask them to you know, recall the three words that we had asked them earlier. And basically, depending on how well they do, you know, uh, the, the, there's a total score of five. You're just asking them to do two tasks and, you know, it can be done in about five minutes time. And uh, the sensitivity and specificity of even these simple tests are very high. And uh, this is something which we could do in our clinic by itself. It's good for documentation. It's good to see, you know, how the patient progresses over time. And it provides us with an objective documentation that would be helpful for us, for other providers, for research researchers and for insurance purposes as well. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, I'm glad you were able to share with me an article that you had written about sort of these cognitive tests that can be used in an office setting in primary care. And we'll put that as one of our resources on the website for the Brain Trust uh, so that people can have access to that uh, if they want to uh, use it in their own learning or in the learning and teaching of other students or residents. It could be really helpful. So thank you for sharing that. And I think that's been part of the, there's a little bit of confusion, right, around these cognitive tests because many of them were created with this concept of screening, right? They called them screening cognitive tests, which was meant to be, I take everybody in the population and I do this test. And by doing this test, I can figure out if some people score at a certain level that Mm -hmm. they are more likely to have a dementia. So it's taking asymptomatic people, people that aren't telling us they're having troubles with their memories, giving this test. And by saying that we've given this screening test, that then we have to do more because we think that they're probably qualified for having a dementia. Mm-hmm. Um, but here we're not really talking about using them as screening tests, these short tests. We're, we're talking about them being used to help us in documenting and evaluating that somebody has a problem in early detection. Um, Absolutely. So can you talk a little bit about that difference? I I mean, it's always a little tricky when you use a test that's designed for something else. (laughs) And everybody's saying like, wait, it's a screening test. But the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force is saying we shouldn't be screening. So why am I spending my time in my clinic doing a screening test? But here we're saying something slightly different, right? Um, Absolutely. So when these tests were developed, you know, uh, we didn't have as much of a good grasp of dementia as we do now. And it's still a a knowledge that is in evolution and we're learning new things as the days go by. Uh, Back in the days, uh, there was uh, a drive to screen everyone for uh, dementia. United States Preventive Service Task Force, as of now, they say that there is insufficient evidence uh, that it is helpful. Things may change down the line, basically, where, you know, we might have one tool which uh, we might use on everyone. But as of now, uh, it's a grade I, which means there's insufficient evidence to screen everyone, basically. And the other thing about these tools that we have to be mindful of as primary care providers are, is that these are screening tools, Now, the tools that we use in our clinic, they are not diagnostic tools, uh, meaning if someone has a particular score, we cannot indiscriminately say, 
you have dementia, you know, we have to correlate the information that we get from these screening tools with the clinical features and uh, with uh, the level of functioning of the patient. So the way in which we are using it now, coming back to your point, Raj, is, uh, is that we are trying to detect dementia early on, basically. Patients may not have a severe life-altering uh, change in their activities, daily living, meaning they might be functioning relatively well, but there are some decline in cognition that can be detected by these objective tests. And the key is to find it early on so that we can help patients basically get adjusted uh, with their disease as it progresses and help them through each and every stage of uh, declining cognition. Right. Yeah. And I, I think one of the difficulties, right, is there's more than one of these tests out there and they've been developed since the 1970s or even before. And, you know, should I be using the mini mental state exam or the MMSC? Should I be using this MOCA exam or the Montreal Cognitive Assessment Form? Should I be using the slums tool? You know, there's about 10 of these things out there and everybody has their own favorite. And uh, I guess, <laughs> yeah. I mean, what is your thought about you know, is one tool really better than the others? Or how do I pick which tool is best for me to use in my uh, primary care practice? Uh, well, uh, this is a question that I get uh, very often. And uh, that, that's the reason why I wrote the article that I know about uh, selecting the cognitive tools. Basically, they're all, for primary care purposes, that they're all fairly similar. You know, a neurocognitive, you know, scientist might find them to be different in their domain. But for us as a primary care provider, they're all pretty similar with the similar sensitivities and specificities. The simplest tool uh, that we can use is uh, by far Minicog because, you know, uh, it has just two things that we're testing, their word recall abilities and their ability to draw a clock. And uh, it takes a very short period of time to do that test. Can I just ask a follow-up there? You yes, absolutely. Right. It's the Minicog, right? Like, so I'm assessing two things, right? Like I'm assessing, can they remember these three words in yes. delay? And then yes. I'm asking them to draw a clock, which can tell me about how can they organize the clock, which is absolutely. executive function. And also how they, they draw, it tells me something about their visual-spatial skills. So I get like three pieces of information about on that test absolutely. in a relatively short amount of time, right? Like about five minutes or so. The question becomes, in my mind, is, well, if somebody is telling me that they're having troubles with their memory and I do this test and they pass it with flying colors, right? Like they, they're able to remember those three words again and they're able to remember, should I say like automatically, like, no, they don't have a dementia? No, these are the screening tools. These are not diagnostic tools. Uh, so we use these tools to screen someone with memory issues. And th since these are not diagnostic tools, we cannot diagnose someone as having dementia or not using these tools. So if you are confused after that, like, you know, if someone has thinking issues, you do a screening evaluation, the patient does well or a patient does not do as well as you would have expected them to do, those patients should be evaluated further. And uh, those are the cases where a detailed neurocognitive evaluation might be more helpful. Yeah. And I think it's just recognizing that, right? Like, because uh, like a mini cog, it only addressed like three of multiple domains, right? Yes. And I just need one or two domains to be affected. And I just might not have examined those domains. 
So we can't, you know, absolutely say like, oh, they passed this with flying colors. So there's nothing wrong with their memory, even though they're telling it, right? No. So so that's why I think your idea of we have to do something more, right? Like we have to maybe test another area of memory or uh, send them to get some more detailed testing so that we can really understand why this disconnect between them telling me that they're not having trouble, they're having troubles with their memory and I'm not seeing it on objective tests, yes. right? So, so in our practice, what we do is like uh, the primary care physicians, they uh, most of the times do a mini cog and, you know, if, if they find something that is concerning a concerning score or if the patient has a, issues that are more concerning, but the patient passes a mini cog with flying color, they send them to geriatricians and we uh, do a slightly detailed evaluation of the patient's um, cognition, uh, patient's activities of daily living. And since um, geriatrics visits are slightly longer than primary care visits, uh, we assess them and uh, see where they are at. And you know, so, so there's a requirement for a detailed neurocognitive evaluation uh, that is taken care of as well. Yeah, no, that's great to have that like tiered approach, right? Like yes. I'll do my best with the simple tool I can do in my office, but I'm going to just keep in the back of my mind. If it's not matching, I may have to get some more help here. And uh, that's a way that we can triage those resources where there's, you know, not as many geriatricians, but now they can focus on the things that are more important. You've done some of the initial work and, and now they can build on it and really explore it. But also tell me something about you were kind of getting to this and I want to spend a little bit more time on that is, is that even if somebody's having troubles on the test, say they score a little bit lower, like a common test people use out of 30 points is this mini mental score, right? Mm-hmm. And somebody scores a 22 on the mini mental. So in general, you would say, oh, there's an impairment because it's less than like 26 and mm-hmm. uh, I have to be concerned about this and this matches maybe their story. But what happens if somebody has, say, a low education level or a, a low literacy level or a language barrier? How should I be careful about interpreting a low score and not automatically saying that, yes, this person has an impairment? Absolutely. And uh, for all our listeners uh, uh, who are not very familiar with the scoring uh, tests, like uh, there are various kinds of scoring tests that we can use. Uh, MMSC was uh, the traditional uh, test that has been used for a long period of time. And I think that was a previous question, actually. <laughs> I skipped over that and went on to a different answer altogether. There is MMSC, uh, Minimental Status Exam, uh, Montreal Cognitive Assessment, or, or MOCA, Lewis University Mental Status Exam, SLUMS. And uh, there's uh, one from Australia called Roland. It's called RUDAS. Uh, it's Roland University Dementia Assessment Scale. So th- there are different kinds of uh, tests uh, that are there. Most of them are scored in a total score of 30, basically. And uh, a score somewhere between 25 to 26 is considered a more a score more than 25 to 26 is generally considered as normal. Uh, this is for uh, those of us who are not very familiar with these tests. There are various factors which can affect these scores. Like the level of education is definitely one of those factors. Uh, you know, people who are highly educated, who uh, have a college uh, education, university education, tend to score higher uh, compared to people who uh, did not finish their high schools. People who are involved in jobs that have more cognitive tasks, uh, like doctors, lawyers, you know, engineers that tend to score better uh, than people who are not involved in uh, day-to-day activities that involves a lot of cognitive uh, skills. 
There is also a question of uh, language and cultural barriers uh, which come into play. If someone's first language is not English, for example, they do tend to score lower uh, than if someone's first language is English. And cultural factors as well uh, do come into play oftentimes, basically, because not all questions are universal and uh, not all questions uh, are questions which uh, relate to daily activities of people all around the world, basically. And uh, with the United States being a country of immigrants, you know, we have people coming from different parts of the world and they may not even relate to the questions uh, that have been formed, basically. Some of the tests uh, take some of these uh, factors into consideration. For example, while I was uh, doing the study on uh, the article, I found that uh, Rudas was uh, actually developed uh, to serve people with culturally and linguistically diverse communities. Some of the tests, uh, like a MOCA does have a different scoring system for like if if a patient does not have a higher level of education, you know, that there's one point that you can substitute for for them. There are different score interpretation in uh, tests like slums where, you know, if someone has high school education, their normal is different than someone who has less than high school education. But regardless of all of these, these are not perfect systems yet. And this is a screening tool. So uh, the score by themselves should be interpreted with uh, the patient's clinical uh, features, with the patient's uh, performance of activities of daily living, as well as the patient's uh, other factors. For example, like, you know, if a patient has anxiety, depression, has sleep issues, you know, has hypothyroidism, they do tend to score lower. So we have to make sure that the patient do not have any of these other factors that are going on. And we need to take the whole picture into consideration rather than just one objective score by itself. So I know we've covered a lot and sometimes this is good for us to kind of summarize where we're at uh, and what's been going on with our podcast today. So I think the key here is we started by thinking about this concept of diagnosis and then we asked ourselves why is it important to show that there's a thinking problem and uh, that we should document objectively in our assessment that there's uh, some area that's being affected. Now, we don't have to send everybody to get that objective measure of cognition to a neuropsychologist that's just impractical. We can do things in our office setting. And what can we do in our office setting is we can use any of the tools that are currently available. They were designed to screening, but we're really not using them for screening purposes. We're using them to document that there's an area of concern or difficulty that matches what the person is telling us is happening. And we have to just interpret those tests with a bit of caution because they're not complete. They're uh, imperfect, but they do help us. Uh, And I think that's all really been good, relevant information into the day-to-day practice of what family physicians and other primary care providers have to face uh, in in busy times. But it uh, highlights, again, that we can do so much in our office by taking a few steps and just remembering if we can objectively document what we are hearing from our patients and their caregivers it will become really useful as uh, information to help us monitor, guide them, support them with our team approach that we take. So, Yukesh, as we wrap up our session today, uh, and you have to get back to the clinic and spend some time <laughs> seeing people. So, again, we wanted to thank our audience uh, for you know partaking in the conversation. Thank you, Yukesh, for spending some time in your busy schedule 
to share your input on sort of how we approach objectively documenting thinking problems in primary care. And I'm looking forward to us hitting the road again and seeing what else we can learn from other physicians across the state on this really important puzzle and picture of how primary care physicians, family physicians play a huge role in our ecosystem for supporting dementia capability for the state of Illinois um, so that there is no wrong door when somebody's having troubles and they get the support from uh, anybody they interact with. So thanks again, everybody, for joining us on today's session, and we'll be back with another podcast soon. Thank you to our expert faculty and to you, our listeners, for tuning into this episode. If you have any comments, questions, or ideas for future topics, please contact us at podcast at thebraintrust.com. For more episodes of The Brain Trust, please visit our website, thebraintrustproject.com. You'll find transcripts, speaker disclosures, instructions to claim CME credit, and other Alzheimer's resources as well. Subscribe to this podcast series on Healthcare Now Radio, Spotify, Apple, Google Play, or any major podcast platform. Thank you again, and we hope you tune into the next episode of The Brain Trust. <laughs>